I just want to, again, set the record straight that from the evidence from relational neuroscience uh, about our human bodies is now coming in very strong, without dispute, about what builds resilience. And what builds resilience is attunement and responsive care. When we're responsive to those emotions and not viewing it as a temper tantrum or something that we should ignore. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I am so excited to share this episode with you because my guest is someone I've come to know and love and respect and learn so much from, Dr. Mona Delahook. If you are not familiar with Mona, she is the author of the book Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges, which we talked about together on this podcast about two years ago. Well, Mona has a brand new book that is out today, and it is even more powerful and profound, if that's even possible. It's called Brain Body Parenting, How to Stop Managing Behavior and Start Raising Joyful, Resilient Kids. So a little bit more about Mona before we get started. Mona is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families, as well as a senior faculty member of the Perfectum Foundation and a member of the American Psychological Association. She's also a frequent speaker, trainer, and consultant to parents, organizations, schools, and public agencies. But today, we're going to talk all about Mona's new paradigm-shifting book, Brain Body Parenting, which honestly, and you'll hear this in our conversation, it sparked so many aha moments and caused me to reflect on many aspects of my own parenting journey. Mona and I talk about why it's never too late to make changes to our parenting approach, what our child's platform is, and how we can help our children have a sturdier one, the critical role of our co-regulating to support our children, and the hopeful news and science that Mona is encountering in her work. I am just so excited to see how brain-body parenting supports children and families as it makes its way into the world. So please listen re-listen, and share this episode with your friends. All right, and now let's get to my conversation with Mona. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Mona, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm so excited to be back. I'm so excited you're here. And usually I start like, tell me your whole story and your personal why. And there's so much I want to talk about that I don't want to spend a lot of time there. But tell us about your why for this book, because we're talking about your new book, Brain Body Parenting. And you told me when we first talked about this book that this is like your most favorite book, that this is the book that you're so excited about, even more than Beyond Behavior. So can you kind of tell us about the why as part of your story in writing this book? Yeah, thanks. It's So this was the dream book that I've always dreamt of, of writing for, for parents, although I loved writing Beyond Behaviors. Beyond Behaviors was in kind of in my my office voice in my nurturing, helping parents voice, uh, navigate systems. And 
a, a bit of the, you know, the system change that I really believe needs to happen too. When I saw children being essentially either punished or reinforcement scheduled or sticker charted for their individual differences and not respected for those unique differences, that was the, that was a huge driving force behind my blogging and, and writing at all, because I just, it wasn't, it wasn't squaring with what I then knew about how human beings develop resilience and trust in the world. So, so um, it's all been an incredibly fun journey. And so beyond this book, Brain Body Parenting expands uh, beyond the idea of behavioral challenges to basically every aspect of rearing our children. And the reason I wrote it, the why, is that as a psychologist, as a child psychologist over the past 30 years, you wouldn't believe the amount of advice that parents get. And some of the advice just leaves me with my mouth hanging open, like, really? Your pediatrician recommended that, or your IEP team recommended that. And again, no blame or shame on fellow providers who I believe everybody has children's best interests in mind. But I wanted to set the record straight from my point of view, what I've learned from the people I think are the best neuroscientists in the world, and just give parents a comprehensive yet friendly guide to their child and help hopefully help reduce suffering and increase joy in our relationships. So that's the why. It's such a good why. I love that you're like, I'm setting the record straight. And you said from my perspective, but you know, everything that you share, I so resonate with, and I I know that our listeners will as well. So I just have to say, for me to set the record straight, I talked with my humans about this at dinner last night. I was saying, oh, I'm going to be talking to Mona. I read this book, and I was talking about the book. And I will say that all I kept thinking over and over and over again is, I wish I could do this all over again. Like, I'm sitting across from my 17-year-old, and There's so much heartache and pain and suffering for our whole family that I feel had I had access to this information, I could have avoided. And I, you know, and I'm not big into the the blame, the shame and the guilt and all those pieces. But I actually just wanted to talk about that piece, even before we get into it for parents, like, I think this is a valuable read, no matter what age your children are, is it ever too late to reparent? Like, is it ever too late to make changes? The short answer to that is absolutely not. It's never too late because our brains and our bodies are constantly updating our predictions about the world. That is the most hopeful message from from the latest neuroscience, neuroscience, including um, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who who I quote a lot in the book. It's never, ever too late. And just from my heart, I mean, I almost have tears in my eyes. I think I do when you said that, because I feel the same way. This is the book that I wish I would have had. Yeah, it's emotional. Um, It's me, it's you, it's all of us. And that's okay, because, you know, parenting is hard, and each of our humans is unique. And if I would, if, if I would have had this information, I would have used it. But We do the best we can with the information we have. And so um, it's, 
it's, I hear what you're saying, but I think, but I, and I hope that the main message of the book is that our relationships with our kids are always in flux. I am updating my, my children's predictions and they are adults. So I'm so grateful for that because the past doesn't determine our, our future. The past can be used as the most amaz- amazing launching pad for understanding each other better. And it's bi-directional. My children are understanding me better and they, and I am understanding them better. It's bi-directional. This is a, this is a dyadic process. Yeah. That's really helpful to hear. And I will say, you know, you you said in the beginning that this was very personal. Like your voice, you do share a lot of stories. I read some stories. I was like, all right, if Mona experienced that, I'm okay. Like, I'm okay too. Because you're very human. You're very vulnerable in your shares. And, you know, you share some of your less than brilliant parenting moments. That is really a gift to the reader, the way that you just show up as yourself on the page. and it, And it feels like it does feel like you're having coffee, right? You're having a conversation with a gentle guide. (laughs) Oh, so glad. That's music to my ears. That's what I wanted it to feel like. I wanted it to feel gentle because we are smothered in judgment from, from internal and external sources. So I'm so glad that it felt reassuring. And yeah, I messed up. I, I am human and I, I'm actually a sensitive human with extra sensitivities. So the chances of me having little ruptures and needing to make repairs is probably more than the average parent. So I I have a lot of stories and there's a lot more that I could have told. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, that'll save those for podcasts. The next book, the next book. (laughs) We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. 
It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So in the very beginning, you say there is no one size fits all approach to successful child rearing. What's most important isn't the rules, but the child. And that was just one of many things that I read that I was like, yeah, of course. But I was also like, oh my gosh, right. And you talk later in the book about, you know, these different philosophies, like we can be supportive or we can focus on letting our kid fail or we can prioritize, you know, this and that, but none of that matters if you're looking at the child. So can you talk more about that piece and really understanding who our kids are? Yes, that's, and and again, you know me, I'm, I'm inclusive. So I, I love those different parenting techniques that are, that have mindfulness and, you know, uh, relationship based and all those things. They're, they're all great. But to me, the, our best parenting decisions, our best way to know our child isn't just looking at our child's behaviors, but how our children, um, how each of our our children, if you have more than one, everybody processes, interprets, and understands the world from their unique brain and body. And it will be different than ours as a parent. And this, this whole idea that we can develop a roadmap that's customized to this child's nervous system is, is what I do in my work. And to me, it's, I can do parents, I can, I can help you better if I help you understand your child than if, than if I give you scripts that might work for a particular situation. But if oftentimes, you know, I've used scripts before that sounds great, but in the moment they kind of fall short for my child because there's so many things we have to consider at the same time. Yeah. And I'm always looking for scripts. And they are great, but, but it's true. There is just something about the way, like I said, with every chapter is like, it just kept hitting me over and over and over again. It's like a deprogramming that we have to do to really realize. And this is the example I, I, when I was talking with Asher and Darren about this at dinner last night, I was talking about the pathways and I'm not finding the exact example, but this idea that we look at a challenging moment or a big, you know, meltdown, which I parented through a lot of tantrums and meltdowns that Ash had, you know, many years ago. And this reframe of, oh, wow, my child is like out of control right now and having this intense behavior. And this is hard and and looking at the behavior and not thinking, oh, my child's in the red pathway. 
that alone, I was like, okay, mind blown. Like if I had just said, oh, Asher's in the red pathway, it would have changed my complete experience. Can you talk about that difference? It changed my complete experience too. So I too had a child who had explosive reactions to what seemed to be everyday events. And her well-meaning pediatrician freaked me out about that. He's like, well, okay, I'm really concerned about this. We have to consider, let's see if it fits into any diagnosis. And you say that to a child psychologist and like, who didn't have this additional lens is like, oh my gosh, you know, have I done something wrong? Is there a, you know, Aunt Trudy's genes coming through and with a weird like um, tendency of a, of a psychiatric illness. I mean, all those things that I was trained in graduate school floating through my head instead of, oh, she's got a weak platform. Right now she's vulnerable. Her nervous system is detecting threat. And oh, let's be curious about that. Oh my gosh, sure enough, this child was highly sensitive to certain auditory frequencies and to and to light and dark and uh, you know that would have been heaven sent information that I would have said uh, no, not only would I have felt less blame for myself but then I would have had a way to help her and connect sooner um as it turns out that I had a child who had a very challenged autonomic nervous system and the actual, the actual diagnosis for that didn't come through until she was an adult. So this is new information. It's very new information. I'm so glad that it, it's helpful to you as a lens because, oh, and it's for, for me too. I like, okay, I'm, I'm red right now. Or, wow, I'm feeling blue. I've been feeling blue for two days. I need to maybe take a peek at that. These, these different color pathways are actual states of our of our nervous system that we can have compassion for. Yeah, and just for listeners, this is something we go into quite a bit in the last conversation I had with Mona about her book Beyond Behaviors is the the red, green and blue pathways. So I'm going to include a link to that whole conversation in the show notes. Please listen if you haven't, but would you mind just taking a minute for people so they have context today to tell us about those three pathways? Sure. So the pathways are a easy way to understand uh, more about our autonomic nervous system and the theory base that I feel is the most useful in translation is the polyvagal theory. There are different theories of the autonomic nervous system, but we all have one. And so my colleague in the uh, early 2000s coded them through uh, colors and I use the, the colors. So basically they ha- we have a, a social engagement system, which is the green pathway. This is where we're feeling calm. We are, we are, this is where our children in ourselves, we're open to learning, we're cooperative, our, our body is calm, our physiology is stable. Um, And what you, what you see on a child is basically rhythmic breathing, being able to, to play, to learn, to be flexible. It's just kind of a state where you can see it. They're basically in a, in a calm, safe place. 
in their body, in their physiology. However, of course, we don't all live there all the time. We can't because the life presents challenges to us either inside of our bodies, like a stomach ache or, or a thought that's really uh, distressing, um, or from outside, from, from the environment. So that then we have the sym- sympathetic nervous system, which I call the red pathway. And this is where our bodies detect threat. And then all of a sudden, um, there's a whole cascade of changes in our physiology to protect us. And here you will see things related to movement. So fast, impulsive movements. The child may be um, breathing heavily. Their heart rate may may increase. They may get sweaty in their hands or on their face. Um, You will see that their breathing may not be as, as regular and here is also where we would see running away and on the extreme, uh, you know, kicking, hitting, biting, spitting, things like that. It's basically when the nervous system is trying to protect itself through movement and get back to the green. So we don't have to fear it, but we have to pay it. We should pay attention to it because it's a sign of distress. And this is, I think, the main point in Beyond Behaviors is that this is a sign of distress and not a purposeful misbehavior. This is what we would call a stress behavior or a stress reaction. And that can bring us to a lot more compassion and also better techniques, much better techniques to help that behavior calm down. And then finally, really quick, the blue pathway is the, um, the pathway when individuals are exposed, generally exposed to great amounts of stress for a long period of time. And then the body starts to kind of lose hope and there's disconnection. So there's slowing of movements. There's not a desire to play. Um, The child may look to appear drowsy or depressed. And then they're, you know, they're not seeking contact. They're kind of, the body is kind of shutting inward to conserve energy and this would require, you know, a lot of, of support and en- engagement to help them want to feel hopeful again. And also, I just want to, to say that all of these pathways are functional in humans. And we don't have to be, we, we would expect to cycle in and out of the green, blue, and red. And, and now we know there are, there are mixed pathways and blended pathways. But for simplicity's sake, we're not concerned if you or your child feel blue or down for an hour or a few days. We're really talking about weeks or months of disconnection. So we want to put it into its proper context. Of course, our children sometimes are just going to flip out and want to move, but it's just valuable, a valuable clue rather than something to necessarily uh, start to think that you need better or more intense discipline. Thanks so much for explaining that. So you talked, you mentioned the word platform earlier, and you have this concept in the book about your child's unique platform, and you refer to a sturdy versus a vulnerable platform. So can you tell us a little bit about that? As I was reading, I also was wondering if differently wired kids by default have a more vulnerable platform, and I'm not sure if I was getting that right. I think that wired kids, at least in my clinical experience, we can say may very well have a more vulnerable platform. The only reason I'm saying that is that our platforms are determined by the ways our bodies take in sensory information. And we know that many of our differently wired kids have differences 
in their sensory processing. This is how all humans take in information. So I would say that's a pretty good guess. Uh, now, of course, not every, not all of our children may, would have a more vulnerable platform. But let me just describe um, the, the platform, the word platform I use as a shorthand for basically the brain and body connection. Because we're never just a brain and we're never just a body. We're always both. and. For me, the missing part in the parenting literature uh, that I that I kind of zoned in also in Beyond Behaviors was that a lot of our interventions are brain-focused. They're talk therapy and helping children learn new ways to cope and having them memorize responses and maybe even just working on their behaviors. They're kind of top-down approaches, which inherently there's nothing wrong with that, but when we take into consideration the whole platform, the body and the brain, then we can figure out how to help make it more sturdy. And so kids with a sturdy platform, when they're feeling in the green and when they are what I call have a body budget that's nice and flush, right? That's again from the theory of constructed emotions, is that they're flexible, they're calm, they're cooperative, they're sturdy. But when we have a vulnerable system, a vulnerable platform, then we will see children who might look inflexible, rigid, defensive, those words that come up when a child maybe throws an iPad and breaks it, right? Or smacks a sibling. That is an indicator of a vulnerable platform. And then it kind of gives us, in order for us to start to help the child, how do we make, help that platform get sturdier so that we can talk to them about what just happened? Excellent. Thank you. One of the things then you talk about is the right challenge or the, the challenge zone. Because so much of this, as I was reading, and by the way, there are so many great examples and anecdotes in there. So you really give parents an opportunity to, to see you know situations that they may resonate with and relate to. But so many of the kids... The, the parents listening to this show are, are raising spend a lot of their time in the red zone. Like the, the red pathway is kind of their home base. So it's hard to know, right? How much do we push? How much do we back off? Like, where do we even kind of start this work to help our kids become more regulated? That's uh, the, the big question because the challenge zone or what Gene Ayers called the just right challenge. That's a, a term that's popular in occupational therapies that you want to give the child a just right challenge because without a small degree of challenge, you don't learn anything new, right? The brain has to recognize that, the, oh, there's something new here to learn. So we don't want to take away challenge for our children, but we don't want to overwhelm them with the activities or the, or the asks in their life. So it's finding this just right zone. And to me, it's getting to basically having them be in the green, but moving toward, it could easily move towards light green or, you know, light pink and finding ways to titrate 
basically through one of our biggest tools, which is co-regulation, which is using our relationship, using our tone of voice, using our own emotional state, our own platform, kind of sharing our platform. And it's, you know, I have to say it's, of course, this is a learning curve and it might be a little easier with younger children because their platforms are, are more malleable, but we can help our children stay in that uh, just right challenge zone through our our relationship and through the tools we use, we pull out based on what we know about our child. And that's the cool part is that we can customize our interactions to pull out the tools we need, not just to pull out generic tools. And I'll just say on that co-regulation piece, another conversation I had with my husband about this. I feel like this is a true confessions conversation. (laughs) I remember a time, and I may have written about this, where you know, Asher was maybe four and had just had an epic meltdown at a mall. And I I brought, you know, Ash out to the car and got them strapped into the car seat. And some therapist or someone had said, you should always have reading material with you so you can just wait it out. So I just stood outside the car and I read a magazine while my child was completely losing it. And so... (laughs) And so I was sharing that. I'm like, do you remember when that happened, Darren? And Darren's like, yeah. I'm like, do you know what we were supposed to do in that moment? We were supposed to not ignore a child. We were supposed to use our ability to regulate to to co-regulate with them. And like Darren was like, oh, crap. Like, you know, it's just one of those moments. But it is such a powerful part of this work. And it's not easy, to be fair. It's not something we'll get every time. But it's so powerful. It's not easy. And and sometimes it won't even be possible. Sometimes we just have to be steady and realize that that nervous system basically needs a few minutes to try to regulate. So it's not easy, but um, true confessions like, yes, I, I, I remember a moment too. Oh my gosh. Dropping off one of our most, our most sweet and vulnerable children to uh, this priest three-year-old preschool class where the, the school's, uh, the school said, if the child's crying or very upset or reaching for you, just you, we just, you just need to ignore it. And my adorable husband, who was very sensitive, did it like twice. And, and then it was like, something's, this is just dreadful. Is something's wrong here. And we, we pulled her from the school. But to be honest, I heard from a parent last week who was given the advice that you have, it's the best thing to do is just wait it out and do not contact the child when they're in this response. So this is current advice as well, that we really need to, again, not to feel, don't feel shame or blame parent. If you're, if you've been told this and that if you've, if you've done it because your child knows they're loved and we can always update their experience, just know you're not alone. And that's, that's why I hope this book gets around because I just want to, again, set the record straight that from the evidence from relational neuroscience uh, about our human bodies is now coming in very strong without dispute about what builds resilience. And what builds resilience is attunement and responsive care when we're responsive to those emotions and not viewing it as a temper tantrum or something that we should ignore. Yeah. And you do address 
it's a myth really that coddling is a bad thing. And you have a section where you say that the check-in is the new time out. So you are kind of really tackling some of these very strong beliefs that so many parents live by unquestioningly. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. What are some of the other biggest maybe barriers or blocks that parents have to really embracing this new perspective? Well, that I think that one is is the is the biggest one. And inside of yourself, I get that, but also from maybe neighbors and maybe the par- the grandparents or, you know, people in the checkout line at the grocery store. Do we have this cultural problem with worrying about if we're coddling children? So I just wanted to say that responsive care isn't the same as coddling. Coddling would be giving your child everything they want or never saying no or never having a a boundary. And of course, children need us to set boundaries for them. They don't know what's best for them. As a little toddler, you wouldn't let them eat five candy bars that, that they want to eat. But you can still set good boundaries and be empathic in this new lens of of not judging a behavior but viewing it as distress you can both you can do both you can chew gum and walk at the same time you can be empathic and loving and still set those necessary limits so i think that when people if people have um an immediate wonder about it uh just to just to feel reassured if this is not permissive parenting it's attuned and customized parenting with the nervous system in mind. That's great. Part of this happens in our own families, but also our kids 
live in a world in which they're interacting with other people. And, you know, you have examples of this and so much of where the really challenging stuff happens for my listeners is when their kids are in preschool, when they're in those early elementary school years where there is a certain way or expectation about what, I guess it's really compliance, but what behavior should look like. And then we have these kids. So we often get so much pressure from teachers and school administrators to fix or address this very concerning behavior. So how do we navigate that reframe and helping other people see what's really going on? I know that's like the life's work, right? But how can we help facilitate that understanding? Yeah, well, it's the life's work, but it's also such a pressing question because in our, especially in our education system, it's set up to view behaviors in that older paradigm. It's just set up that's that way. It hasn't updated itself. The field of education hasn't updated to these newer concepts after the decade of the brain came and gave us all this information, which I guess isn't that long ago, right? We're, when system change, I'm told system change takes decades and decades. So, but what do you do? And I, you know, I was just reading like in my Facebook feed today about stories that, that parents are saying exactly what, what you just said, Debbie, how do I explain to the teacher? How do I, how do we, how do we not come across as like, um, you know, interfering parents or not wanting our children to wanting to helicopter or whatever. And it really is, is about, I think, disseminating information and breaking down the, um, the older notions that don't allow for the child's, the human's nervous system to be taken into consideration when they are in distress and there are amazing groups out there like the Alliance for uh, Against Seclusion and Restraint, for example. Many of our children are restrained or secluded, and it's actually allowed in quite a few states still. So the journey, I think, partly is, is maybe a little bit of activism, a little bit of just joining with other parents, people in tilt parenting in your communities, and others are are beginning to send this information out. But on a practical level, here's, here's what I found helpful. Usually within a school, we can find one adult who gets it. And sometimes it's a, a school counselor. Sometimes it may be a vice principal or a teacher's aide. I mean, it could be somebody who's a PE teacher. You really only need an, one adult on that team who gets it, who can kind of advocate for the child and also work from the inside. And that's kind of exciting. So try to find one person, one adult within the system to uh, maybe start to break down some of those conceptualizations. And I also want to say that there are a growing number, I hear from, from them every day, a growing number of persons who have been educated as um, behavior therapists who are shifting their models on their own. 
And so they're growing. It's it's quiet uh, because, of course, people have jobs and they're hired to do certain things, but they're growing numbers from the inside. And I think it's shifting quietly from the inside. And it's a big system. And also it's a very expensive industry. There's a lot of money involved in behavioral intervention. So it's a, it's complex, but I just want, I, I hope parents can find a little bit of hope in, under, in knowing that I'm hearing a lot of success stories from emails every day that things are changing bit by bit in, in places around the world. That's great to hear. And I love that practical advice of finding that one ally who can support from the inside. As you were talking, I was thinking about, again, this community, the the listeners to this show, we're raising those neurodivergent kids. And so we always feel like we're kind of up against systems. And you have a whole chapter on making sense of the senses. And my aha moment for that chapter was that sensory processing issues isn't just something that neurodivergent kids struggle with. Everyone has their own unique response to sensory information. And that, again, I was like, oh, every child benefits from this approach. And so listeners, if you have parent friends who are raising neurotypical kids, share Mona's book, share this episode, because their children will benefit from this as well. They have a stake in the ground. They have an important role in PTAs and school systems to help push for better awareness of this too. So I don't know why it just struck me. I'm like, that's right. We all, we're all unique. I'm so glad that struck you. It's so I, my, one of my pet peeves is that there's this idea that something called sensory processing disorder only happens to, you know, a certain amount of people who have a certain amount of characteristics, uh, difficulty with sensory experiences. The, but the truth is the only way any of us understand our world, if you are human is through our sensory systems, it's universal. It's not for our differently wired people. It's for it's for all humans and mammals too. Essentially, we have we we res, we're responding humans. We respond to the information that comes in from inside of our bodies. Those sensations from inside our bodies and from the outside world, and that's the only way we are in the world. It's the only way we know how to move, what to say, how to feel. And so I'm so glad that that came out in that chapter because I wanted it to be universal. This is not, this should not live in occupational therapy in this tiny little field. For goodness sakes, I, you know, I was at the park walking at the park the other day and I saw a child, a little child having a, a reaction to a sensory experience and the parent had no clue what was going on because pediatricians generally don't talk about how is your child processing information through their touch system, their their auditory system, their their taste system? No one talks about it and we have to. Yes. Yes. I mean, this is a big book. So when I was talking with my publisher about Differently Wired and I was like, it's like, oh, this isn't just a parenting book. This is a this is a big idea book. And you know, your book is a big idea book. It's a it's a paradigm shifting book. So that's why I love it so much and I, I'm so excited about it. 
and I want to kind of start to wrap up here, but I just want to say that I really appreciated you have a whole chapter in the book about how we as parents can get back in the green zone. And you really do talk a lot about the importance of our own self-care. And the last chapter was on flourishing. And I loved that as well. I'm a big believer in looking for ways to spark and create joy in our lives and really having those focusing and prioritizing on relationship and connection. And I loved that you use the word chazelik, which is such a great Dutch word. So knowing what we're all experiencing and living through right now, do you have any thoughts on how families can really prioritize working on flourishing, taking care of themselves so that they can really be that co-regulator so they can be that, that strong parent for their child. Yeah. That I wrote that chapter. Um, and I think that would have been around September of 2020, (laughs) you know, so in the, in the, in the height of where I was in California of social isolation from the pandemic where we were, so it, it came from, from a place of both longing in my own heart to have connection, but also reflection um, on all the stories that I've heard from people about their t- peak childhood memories, as well as my own. And as you know, from the book, my, my grandma, my Dutch grandmother, you know, that, that, that cozy relational feeling are my own personal best memories that I can call on any time I want. When I am desperate, I just I I uh, zoom back to her presence and the coziness I felt in relationships. So you need a couple things in order to have those cozy relationships. Number one, you need to feel well enough yourself. And I realize that probably right about now, micro moments of self-care for us is more realistic than if I say self-care, I really am not meaning going over and having a two-hour massage. I'm basically talking about maybe even the awareness, like I maybe I can drink a cup of water by myself right now, or maybe I can go outside and look at the beautiful sky or, or look outside at the snow falling or just breathe <laughs> because I know how stretched we are. So I don't want it to sound like, oh yeah, go get self-care as a privileged, um, you know, thing that certain amount of people can do. I'm just talking about our platform is that as, as parents and caregivers and, and partners, we need to have a platform that's decent enough, that's strong enough to support our kids. And so that's why I say in, in that chapter on ourselves is that it's not, it's not optional. And I know uh, you probably read there that I did put my, I felt very energetic. I had, a, I was pretty good at multitasking as a, as a mom. And um, I did put myself second. And sometimes it all, almost felt heroic in a weird way. And I wish I could do it all again, because now I know from my children who can tell me as adults that they, they really felt my, um, they, they felt the impact of my multitasking. And I was sometimes a mom that was hard to pin down emotionally. And that's, again, from my heart, if we can learn to have cozy moments that it's okay to settle ourselves into the green 
if you are one like I uh, am, to have a system that needs a lot of movement. Um, sometimes it might be a little harder to have those cozy moments with your kids, but they are. And then there's that research piece to resilience again, is that it doesn't take a ton of moments, but a one caring adult in a child's life who settles down with them, like my grandmother did for me, um, just builds resilience in human beings. So it's one of the most beautiful and, and loving things you can do for yourself and for your children. So great. So before we say goodbye, is there one for people listening, one thing you would you would hope that they take away from this conversation from their book that will support them in the middle of what is most likely a pretty challenging parenting journey? Well, a couple things. One, I want you to to feel sturdy and understand that if you hear things from professionals and from other people looking at your child that makes you feel insecure or uncomfortable, please know that all of our fields related to pediatric child therapies are getting updated. And so you might be getting information like I did that made me scared. And so I would say, know that you're not alone, understand that it's hard but also be really gentle on yourself and your child and understand that this actual situation on what's coming out as we translate neuroscience into practice is very hopeful. And we don't have to buy our culture's labeling of differences, of brain wiring differences, or of other differences as negative. We can celebrate them as part of this unique, gorgeous human being that we have the privilege of walking alongside. So be gentle and have hope. Such a good message. Thank you so much. And listeners, the book is Brain Body Parenting, How to Stop Managing Behavior and Start Raising Joyful, Resilient Kids. As you're listening to this, the book is available and it is fantastic. Obviously, I've had many conversations about it at the dinner table with my people, and I, I'm sure there'll be more to come. But thank you, Mona, for your work, for what you do to support families like ours, and just for taking the time today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for all you're doing as well. Take good care. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for the show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. 
Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.